It was nine o'clock at night, and his family was in bed. Michael Weekman was just about to turn in himself when he heard a sharp rapping on the front door of his little farmhouse in Hydesville, just outside Rochester, New York. So he went to the door to see who was knocking at bedtime, and there was no one there. So he closed the door and started to make his way to bed again. But he hadn't gotten far from the door when the rapping came again. He rushed to the door and threw it open. But again, no one there. He went out into the street and looked around the house. No one. This was particularly eerie in a farming community where there's a lot of open land and not many places to hide. So this time when he went back in the house, he stayed by the door with his hand on the latch and waited to see if the knock would come again. And the rapping came. Yet again. Michael Weekman sprang into the street for the second time that night. But no person was to be seen anywhere in the vicinity. My name is Rob C. Thompson. I am the Supreme Hierophant of the Sacred Order of Alchemical Actors. Joining me today for our episode on the first celebrity medium, Maggie Fox, arguably also her sister, Kate, is Olivia Literal, our Grandmaster of the Order. Hello. What's up? You know, just hoping that you don't hear a lawnmower right now, honestly. <laughs> That's really I'm it. I'm also <laughs> hoping that I don't hear a lawnmower <laughs> because someone is mowing their lawn near you. Everyone. There, it's like Everyone a party. Everyone is mowing their lawn. It's a lawn mowing party. It's a community lawn mowing. <laughs> that's because that's what they did in the 19th century, too. They would get together and mow their lawns. Weird. That, that's not true. They didn't do that. Yeah, I didn't I don't, think so. They didn't have a gas engine to begin with. And also joining us is Savannah Verrett. Savannah, welcome. Hello. Thank you for having me. <laughs> is anyone mowing their lawn near you? No, but I have a little brother upstairs that's stomping around, so... Or maybe it's the the ghost rapping on my roof ceiling. That's more old fashioned. The stomping. Are there any? You're hearing any chains on the upper floor? Hmm. Well, I'm. I've never heard that before in my house. Chains rattling. No. I think I. I'll keep an ear out though. Yeah, because it could be like. Probably able to tell what it is. Jacob Marley or something up there. Oh, Don't no. bring up oh. Christmas right now. I was because... about to say, am I like in trouble? What did I do? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, I guess you. He only shows up if you've been bad. That's yeah. true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, we the members of the, of the Secret, Secret Order, Order of, of Alchemical, Alchemical Actors, Actors do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and honest telling of the, of the history of the occult as, as far as we know, know it. it. Nice. The Weekmans lived in the Little Hydesville farmhouse for part of 1846 and 1847. Later that year, Mr. Weekman and his family moved away for reasons having nothing to do with the strange raps, which only repeated once more for his eight-year-old daughter, and the house was occupied by a John Fox and his family. They'd been staying in the house about four months when the strange rapping returned, except the sound was no longer coming from the front door, but rather inside the house. It sounded like someone was moving chairs or knocking on the floor. John and his family did a thorough search of the whole house, but they couldn't find any source for the strange sounds. This was particularly baffling in a period before indoor plumbing, also electricity, and all the other household things that tend to go bump in the night. On the evening of March 31st, just as everyone was crawling into bed, the sounds resumed. 
The Fox girls, Kate and Margaret, were in bed across the room from their parents. We get conflicting reports on the girls' ages, but at least one, if not both of them, were in their early adolescence. Kate, the younger one, was between the ages of 9 and 11, and Margaret, or Maggie, was between the ages of 12 and 15. They started to mimic the taps by snapping their fingers, and the taps mimicked them in turn. Now, here's where a minor controversy comes up, um, and, and it's actually a pretty significant moment in the girls with the girls' first communication with the taps. According to some reports, Kate said to the taps, Mr. Splitfoot, do as I do. Well, this seems pretty harmless. Uh, c- can you guys guess why this was a problem, though? Mr. Splitfoot? One gross image. <laughs> yeah, but I know that's not what it is. <laughs> Well, what creatures have the split feet? Devils and goats and demons. (laughs) Goats and devils. Goats and devils, yes. My memoir. (laughs) And giraffes. Goats and devils and giraffes. (laughs) Oh, my? The life story of Olivia Literal. So it is true, the devils in particular. So goats being associated with devils because of those cloven hooves. Critics imagined uh, that our sisters were communicating with demons and that it was demons who were responsible for these taps because they read Kate's request to Mr. Splitfoot as an invocation of the devil, um, Cloven Hooves. Wait, well, who was hearing her say this to people? Was it her parents and they told people or? It, It was one of those events uh, you know, like nobody's taking notes at the time that it's actually happening. It's just her and her family in the house. But it's one of those events that has been picked up and retold many, 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 many times. Mm. So there are different versions of the same story. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's hard to tell exactly how this entered the lore around this historical moment. John, uh, the father, asked the taps to count to ten. And they did. And John told us, uh, or or he relayed to, not to us personally, but he told history uh, that he started talking to the taps. I then asked if it was a spirit and if it was to manifest it by two sounds. I then asked if it was an injured spirit to give me the sound and I heard the rapping distinctly. I then asked if it was injured in this house and it manifested it by the noise. He discovered that the spirit belonged to a 31-year-old man with a family of five. He was a single parent, his wife having died two years earlier. Mrs. Fox, the mother, asked if the taps would sound for the neighbors and invited Mrs. Redfield over to hear them. Mrs. Redfield started questioning the spirit, uh, and then also the Doosler family, the Hyde family, and the Jewell family all joined the party. What fun. Mr. I'd Fox, like to go to a ghost party, honestly. To hear some taps? To talk yeah. to a dead peddler? Oh my god, yeah. I mean, if if I had a kid and they were like, I can talk to ghosts, I'd be like, everybody, get over here right now. See, it would be so much more fun to just, like, invite people over to just have a dinner party and not tell them and then just, like, have (laughs) it be like a Beetlejuice moment. Yeah. (laughs) You thought we were going to play Twister, but actually. Yeah. (laughs) Talking to Uh, demons. Mr. Fox and Mr. Redfield stayed overnight at the house, but Mrs. Fox and her daughters stayed with the neighbors. News spread of the strange haunting of the Fox House, and people began to flock there from the surrounding area over the next couple of days. Asking yes or no questions, the amateur investigators discovered that this 31-year-old man was a peddler, a man who, a traveling salesman, who had been murdered in the house and buried in the cellar. 
The party attempted to dig for his remains, but apparently he didn't warn them that they were going to strike water, and they had to give up. So your cellar's basically dirt, and they're digging down until they hit the water table. Later, they would come up with his name, Charles B. Rosma, and the searchers would discover traces of quicklime and teeth, also hair. Still later, they would turn up bones along with Mr. Rosma's peddler's case, Uh, but folks are still fairly skeptical of this, despite all this evidence. Do you think, like, or I mean, are those people who are skeptical think that um, the family planted those things? I I guess you would have to. I've actually been to uh, Lilydale, New York, uh, which is where they have Rosma's peddler's case in a museum. Oh, really? uh, In the community of Lilydale. Yeah, you can actually see it. That's really cool. Yeah, they actually had the house. They had the Hydesville house on the property in in Lilydale. So Lilydale is a community of spiritualist mediums uh, associated with the National Spiritualist Association of Churches, which is the group that I studied with uh, during my dissertation work. And they owned the Hydesville house, but it burned down. And they were able to get some of these artifacts out of the house before it burned down. Interesting. Yeah. So it's important to note here, uh, and you'll all want to remember this for later, that while Kate and Maggie were the first to communicate with the mysterious taps, they weren't the only ones. Neighbors from all over carried on conversations with our dead peddler, Charles Rosma. This early account of the Hydesville wrappings was published largely from correspondence with the first witnesses, which was compiled by D.M. Dewey in 1850, which is only you know less than two years or about two years after the events in question. Seems like a long time, but actually not that long. You, you think about the Bible, that was written decades after Jesus ascended to heaven. It may be here remarked that when the sounds first began to attract attention, and during the investigation at Hydesdale, they were heard in the presence of any number of the Fox family. They were also distinctly and repeatedly heard by persons who were examining the house when every member of the family was absent. Dewey says that at a certain point, part of the Fox family left for Rochester where Kate and Margaret's older sister Leah was living with her husband and the tappings were then heard in both places, meaning that they were heard uh, both among the Fox family and uh, among the Leah Fox family, uh, or Leah Fish actually. So wherever the sisters went, apparently the taps were now starting to follow them. So this is where we get the notion that they are mediums for the taps, that they are mediating the taps. But we have to bear in mind that initially the tap sounded without them even having to be in the house and that they sounded in the house before anybody, the Fox family even showed up. And there was no trace of this happening before they were in this house, right? Well, with the Leah Fox, yeah, when they left to go to the sister's house, then the taps seemed to follow them. Yeah. 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 And of course, yeah, Leah's house wouldn't have had taps before that. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing about Leah is then after this, she decides that she's a medium too, and she becomes the third Fox medium. Uh, Jumping on the bandwagon. (laughs) Yes. Well, I mean, ultimately, thousands of women, particularly women, but also some men would jump on the bandwagon and become mediums as a result of these events. Maggie and Kate kicked off a craze for people sort of exploring and discovering their mediumship in this time period. That's pretty cool. So, uh, somehow, as we say, the sisters were mediating the tapping sounds and causing the spirits to manifest in some distinctly audible way, or or that's what we come to believe, despite all these caveats that we've mentioned. 
Now, with the spirits communicating in Rochester, we'd stretched beyond the haunting in Hydesville, and a whole new crew of spirits were now communicating with the, the sisters. The spirits directed Margaret, Kate, and their sister Leah uh, to channel these rappings and to share the news of their communications with the world. They hired out a hall, like you do. They got a venue. Uh, they elected a committee to investigate their claims, and the committee could not come up with any natural explanation for what they were listening to. They, they didn't say that they, were, they had to be spirits, but they also said, you know, we can't explain this using any other means. What are the qualifications for this committee? Like, did they uh, pay them to do this? <laughs> like, no, I, this I think it was just like, study. like smart people in the area, like doctors Ooh. and lawyers and stuff. And, uh, you know, bakers and candlestick makers, those kind of folks. <laughs> so uh, there's a lot of acknowledgement of a tactile jar uh, that people appear to feel in doors and floorboards or bedposts where the spirits are wrapping. So meaning that you can also feel a vibration oh. in the furniture or in the floorboard. So Ooh. it's not just a sound. It's also a physical thing you can feel. This is important also for later. So uh, let's let's carry on here. The sisters are becoming locally famous at this point and starting to give seances for the fairly hefty sum of a dollar to five dollars for private sittings in Albany. So this this starts to seem a little commercial. Five bucks in eighteen seventy three is is a lot of money. Like, it's like how much? Like a hundred bucks. Oh my Holy god! Crap. I didn't think what? it would be that much. I was thinking Jesus. like fifty maybe, but like yeah, geez. It's pricey. What in the world? I've been watching a lot of Pawn Stars, but. <laughs> I did not well, guess it's, that. <laughs> it's between $1 and $5. So I guess it would be between $20 and $100. So the $100 seance would be uh, your high-end seance. You get like you get the sisters for the whole afternoon. I better see some ghosts. <laughs> well, hear them. You're going to hear them. No. no. <laughs> I better see them for 100 You won't be able to see them for another 30 years. Mm. So when they were doing seances, it wasn't like... Um, them trying to figure out about their dead loved ones or whatever. It was just them trying to get the raps to happen in front of people. Yeah, but with the, with the communication, they could tell you, you know, that this rap is your grandmother or it's Benjamin Franklin or whoever. Oh. Because they would oh. tap out a response. So basically it was oh. like, yeah, usually it was a lot of binary questions, yes or no. And mm -hmm. you could technically use the binary questions to go through the alphabet. Is the is yeah. Is your name start with the letter A? No. B? No. C. It's going to take a while, but uh, that's why you paid for that two hours. Yeah. <laughs> you like figure out their name, and then it's like, okay, time to leave. People, I, I mean, this is something I want to emphasize here about the culture of not only New York but America in the early 19th century. People had violent reactions to unusual spiritual phenomena, or um. I don't want to say unusual, different. Anything outside of what they were used to, they got very incensed about, or a certain class of person did. Um, so a mob in West Troy tried to storm the house where Margaret was staying, uh, and word got out about an assassination attempt, and Mr. Bouton, Maggie's host, arranged for some men to actually guard her. Wow. The mob shot into the house and threw rocks through the windows, but Maggie survived the incident. Oh, my God. People were pretty, yeah, like today, you know, if, if you're running like, you know, Nexium or something, you know, the New York Times is going to write a scathing article and eventually, <laughs> eventually 
after we've let you run this sex cult for about 30 or 40 years, eventually we'll prosecute you and bring you to jail. But in 1850, if we, if we didn't like the cut of your jib, like if you just like mentioned God in the wrong tone of voice, an angry mob will show up at your house <laughs> and start trying to stone you. I'd be dead. Uh, yeah, I mean, a, a lot of the like new religious movements today would not have gone over so easily uh, in New York. I mean, I, I do I bring up Nexium, but uh, it's sort of odd they Weird. run out of Albany. <laughs> yeah. Weird. <laughs> yeah. So they actually base themselves fairly closely to this hotbed of religious activity, which we'll get to in a second. Uh, actually, we'll get to it right now. Um, so <laughs> what I'm talking about is the Burned Over District, Woo! Uh, which was. A, a part- Hooray! Burned burning. over! <laughs> Why is it called burned over again? The religious fervor had set the region on fire is oh, the idea. Oh, shit. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Wow. It's on fire with the Holy Spirit Ooh, or various kind kinds of, of spirits. Yeah. The Mormon spirit, the Holy Spirit, the, you know, spiritualist ancestor spirit. Pick your spirit. Pick your spirit. It's setting the, setting the <laughs> world on fire. Setting New York on fire. <laughs> So the Burnover District was actually just a few counties in western New York State uh, where we saw the emergence of an unusual number of new religious movements or practices between 1800 and 1850. So within about 50 years, there were a bunch of new religions that sprung out of this very specific part of the United States. Spiritualism was really the tail end of the phenomenon in 1848, um, and the phenomenon included the Second Great Awakening and also the Mormons of Joseph Smith. Savannah's personal favorite alternative religion. Yep, that's it. <laughs> Which, you know, fun fact, we're about to talk about Mormonism in a little bit more depth, but the Mormons actually are not going to, it's really hard to define them as an alternative religion because they are the fastest growing religion, I believe, in the world right now. Yeah. So, yeah. Millions. Um, never mind. <laughs> I was about to They're say. They're what? I was just, the. I was going to say, like, God's favorite religion, but I'm like, that's probably not something I should say. And Savannah said it here, episode what have you. All of our listeners are going to come to your house and throw bricks through the window. Yep. (laughs) Uh, Okay, well, the point I'm trying to make here is that brings us to today's brief history. Woo, brief history. Talking about a brief history of the Burned Over District. In Western New York's religious fervor began with what's called the Second Great Awakening. People started gathering at outdoor camp meetings where conversion happened on a mass scale. Preachers like Charles Grandison Finney advocated for an active program of saving souls, and he argued that salvation would come through direct spiritual inspiration rather than following doctrine. So you don't just pick up a book and read it. You're not just reading the Bible, even though Henry VIII really wanted you to do that. And Martin Luther, it, it's it's a kind of emotional experience. You know, it's better to be at this tent revival. Um, so the focus is on the personal in religion, and it opens the door for two major new movements before spiritualism. Uh, and those movements are uh, William Miller's, uh, well, William Miller's movement, the Millerites, and Joseph Smith's Mormons. So William Miller was a farmer living in northwestern New York who was inspired while he was reading the book of Daniel. Unto 2300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. What if Daniel didn't mean days, but years? 2300 years after Daniel, that would be, well, that would be 1843. A cleansing, the second coming of Christ. The second coming of Christ will happen in 1843. 
Miller was a reluctant public speaker but felt responsible for sharing his revelation. And, as the predicted year drew closer and closer, he amassed around 50,000 followers. He set the date for the apocalypse to March the 21st, 1843. When it didn't come, he recalculated and landed on October 22nd. Nothing happened. Many became disillusioned by Miller's failure, and he died in relative obscurity in 1849. But a small movement, believing the foretold cleansing and consecration had happened in heaven and not on earth. (laughs) So follow me on this. There's all these Millerites, right? And they're following Uh him, and he's like, the apocalypse is coming. It's coming for us. It's coming now. 1843. It's coming today, and it doesn't come. And he's like, no, it's coming on Halloween. It doesn't come. And this small group, even though he was wrong twice, says, oh, it came. It totally came. It just came up in heaven. Hmm. Well, Not like, down what, here. What was wrong with heaven that it needed to be redone? <laughs> I Damn. Don't, I don't, it's consecrated. Jesus consecrated it. He'd been waiting. I don't know. Got consecrated. It hadn't been consecrated before, I suppose. Anyway, uh, do you know what religious movement believes this? This is a, They exist today. They're uh, all over the place. You can find churches all over the country, or the United States anyway. Oh, gee, I can't remember. Wait, um, Seventh-day Adventists. Right. There you go. Seventh-day Adventists. Yep, that's that's them. I know where two of their churches are, and uh, every time I pass them, I'm like, oh, it's those people that believe the apocalypse happened. <laughs> uh, and isn't that, t- was that Waco was the Seventh-day Adventist? It was a splinter group, yeah, a sect of sure. the Seventh-day Adventists. Because they called so- themselves, did they call themselves like da- Davidites or something? Or what did they... To Branch Davidians. They were the Branch that's Davidians. That's what it is, right. So that's like, So yeah. we're not saying on this podcast that they were Seventh-day Adventists, but they began as Seventh-day Adventists, and then they splintered off and formed their own group with a unique set of beliefs that sort of, you know, uh, let's say rift on Seventh-day Adventist beliefs. All right, Savannah, here we go. In the small town of Palmyra oh. in Ontario County, New York, on the 23rd of September, 1823, Joseph Smith <laughs> had a vision of the angel. Go ahead, Savannah. Moroni. Moroni. Moroni helped him to discover a collection of golden tablets buried in a stone box in Manchester, New York. Smith translated the tablets from behind a screen to his friend Martin Harris, and the transcription was printed into uh, 500 copies of the first Book of Mormon. And it came to pass that the Lord commanded my father, even in a dream, that he should take his family and depart into the wilderness. And it came to pass that he was an obedient unto the word of the Lord. Wherefore, he did as the Lord commanded him. And it came to pass that he departed into the wilderness. Uh, Now, this comes back to the theme of of Maggie and the rocks being thrown at her. Smith and his followers were run out of New York State because the community there believed, or I guess the mainstream believers in New York, believed that their their practices were eccentric. uh, Uh... and part of those included Smith's prophetic, the, the notion that Smith had prophetic authority. He also believed that direct personal revelation was superior to reason. So this goes back to Grandison Finney, the idea that emotional, your, your emotional, personal sense of God's presence or God's message is superior to anything you read about or reason through, you know, in the Bible or, you know, some commentary on the Bible. Does that make sense? Yes. So this is the direction that religion is tending in the burned over district of a personal revelation. Yeah, he's a tactile learner, you know? Like, yes. I appreciate that. <laughs> he's a tactile learner, yes. 
<laughs> so what would what do tactile learners need? How do you learn tactilely? Like with blocks and stuff? Yeah, so he's like you're feeling the religion instead of just reading about it. Yeah, he's building so Legos. He's using yeah. Legos to build the religion. You know, they can be used to build anything, so. <laughs> Did you just like, I felt like you just gave an ad, a free ad I'll, to Legos. <laughs> I will promote Lego any chance that I can. So. <laughs> All right, so full disclosure here, Savannah does work for the uh, Lego Corporation. No, I don't. Never mind. Uh, oh, My name don't? isn't Savannah. No, I do. Oh. <laughs> I was just I trying to backtrack. <laughs> thought you moved on. No, I... I just don't want Lego to know that I think the Mormons are God's favorite religion. And <laughs> stuff. Maybe. They can't fire you for that. That's discrimination. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, that that's discrimination. a good point. <laughs> okay. Uh, Smith was imprisoned in the town of Nauvoo, Illinois, which incidentally was a town that he personally had founded. They Nauvoo. Sort of, the, the Mormons were crossing the United States and founding towns as they went. It's like Jar Jar Binks lived there, it too. It sounds like it, doesn't it? Yeah. You the said argument. Nauvoo, right? Nauvoo, Not yeah. Nauvoo, okay. Right. N-A-U-V-O-O. So the argument, um, or, or the belief is that it was his belief in plural marriage, which was a fairly late doctrine that Smith came to, that you would marry multiple wives, had incensed some of his followers who turned against him. Um, and he was ultimately shot to death uh, trying to uh, escape essentially this this mob uh, in the prison. The Mormons would go on to establish their city of Zion in present-day Salt Lake City, Utah, uh, led by... Uh, Brigham Young. Brigham Young, I remembered. Yeah. Ultimately delivered them to the Holy Land. So uh, a little bit like the story of Moses and, uh, what was it, Joshua, who ultimately delivered the Jews? I don't know that one. <laughs> so Moses was never destined to see the Holy Land, right? Does this sound familiar, Olivia, from Sunday school? Yeah, vaguely. I think I tuned out a lot of the Moses stuff, though. I'm not gonna, <laughs> not gonna lie to you. I don't think but I he's found. He's sort of your man. No, he's Moses not. Moses is your guy. He turns the rivers to blood. He does all this witchy stuff. The <laughs> when staffs did I say become Moses snakes. Moses was my dude. No, I mean, <laughs> he's. I mean, it's fine. He parts You're the right. sea, man. No, I'm not saying That's it's pretty not badass. pretty cool, but. You know, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm a big fan of the, you know, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, you know, that yeah. song. But yeah, yeah. anyway. The point I'm trying to make here is that's a brief history of the Burned Over District. Woo! Yay! Good job. When they came to New York City in June of 1850, they met with Horace Greeley, the newspaper editor of the New York Tribune, one of the biggest newspapers of its day. Greeley was briefly a congressman, but wasn't popular with Congress because he was busy doing exposés on his fellow legislators while in office. He ran as a presidential candidate against Ulysses S. Grant's re-election in 1872, and he championed the settlement of the American West in his newspaper and in his politics, helping to popularize the phrase, Go West, young man. Oh. You guys ever heard that? So, no. Go West, young man. Um. So he was a politician and a um. Press member of the press. Yeah, yeah. Like, well, yeah, an editor. That's yeah, pretty he, crazy. He blended worlds there. Yeah. He was an early, albeit reluctant, advocate for the Fox sisters. His wife had taken an interest after the death of their child, Picky, and uh, Greeley invited the sisters to their house. There, along with much that seemed trivial, unsatisfactory, and unlike what might naturally be expected from the land of souls, I received some responses to my questions of a 
very remarkable character, evincing knowledge of occurrences that no one could have been cognizant. Greeley found the business of waiting around for spirits to manifest, who sometimes didn't manifest at all, a kind of dull avenue of investigation, and he didn't pursue it much, although he tended to believe that there were among the frauds and fakers some genuine mediums, and that the foxes were genuine mediums. Greeley believed that the sisters should be given a proper education and offered to pay to send both of them to school. Their older sister Leah did not want to put an end to the girl's career, which by all accounts was in an upward trajectory, so she let the younger sister Katie go while taking the older sister Margaret on to perform in Philadelphia. What so would... Leah kind of became their manager? I'm sorry. She no, became no, Maggie's manager. I mean, this is a splitting off moment. This is when mm-hmm. Kate, Maggie becomes the celebrity medium and Katie sort of fades into the background because she just goes off to school and lives a normal life ever afterwards. What year is this around? 1850. So what would school even look like if they like decided to go to school? Yeah, that's a good question. So here's the interesting thing about 1850. Educational reform, the way we understand it today, like school as a public good that everyone is entitled to, that hasn't really come around yet. So Katie Fox is actually getting a leg up Hmm. in being, you know, sent to this private school by Horace Greeley. Mm -hmm. She's getting a fancy education. So is it like actual like education, like scholarly, or is it more of like... I guess I'm like wondering, what did they teach the girls at this point? And uh... reading, writing, arithmetic, sure, but the emphasis would be on, you know, uh, like a finishing school kind of thing. Okay, that's it. Okay, cool. Yeah. Uh, so, in my opinion, Leah is a kind of divisive figure in the story of the Fox Girls. It se- as you're saying, she becomes their manager. It seems suspicious that she would develop mediumistic powers, just like her sisters. But she made the case that mediumship was a hereditary trait in the Fox family, so okay. <laughs> okay, then, I guess. Maybe. Uh, spiritualists tended to see Leah as a positive figure, advancing the cause. Emma Harding Britton, one of my favorite mediums, for example, called her the best test-wrapping and physical medium I ever met. Damn. As well mm-hmm. as the kindest and most noble-hearted of women. Damn, um, wow. that on your what resume. The hell? Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, when I read about Leah... I, I tend to not like her, but then, you know, I, I do have a, a lot of respect for Emma Britton's, and Emma Britton knew a lot of mediums, so mm-hmm. yeah, that's a pretty high-ranking endorsement. How old yeah. was Leah around this time? Uh, Leah's, I think, about a decade older than the other okay. two. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so she's married, she's established. Yeah. Yeah. So she's definitely, she's in a position to manipulate them. Mm-hmm. Did she sure. have kids? Uh, I, that's a good question. I do not know if she has children at this time. She wasn't watching them if she did. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. She's definitely busy doing other things. Her husband was the first stay-at-home dad. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Not even, because she held general receptions, uh, in the winter evenings at her home in New York. okay, never mind. (laughs) Let those spirits Uh, in. (laughs) Yeah. And her guests would gather around the old Rochester dinner table from the Fox Farmhouse, which she brought to her home. I, mm. Did they also eat dinner on that table still? I don't see why not. Because <laughs> that's kind of why fun. It's a yeah, table. It's, what okay. it, it's its main function. Also, yes, sure, You're there damn are ghosts right. who talk through it. But <laughs> Wait, where were the parents? Uh, Did they die? Home. No, I think they're still oh. alive. They're I'm just, sort of oh, talking about like... later in history. but hmm. Yeah, okay, okay. So, never mind. I was just like, so these young girls are like having their sister raise them now, but I guess they're not young really anymore. 
Well, yeah, Leah would become this sort of like grand dam of the spiritualist movement, I guess is what I'm trying to point out. Like gotcha. as the decades pass, hmm. she becomes this like central organizing figure and, and a lot of the most famous spiritualists and mediums in the country go to visit at Leah. Like she probably met all of them. She knew all of them very wow. well. Non-spiritualists tended to see her as mercenary and self-promoting, taking oh. advantage of Maggie in order to keep the rapping money train rolling. So yeah, that's the, the twin yeah. sides of Leah. Okay, mm-hmm. so Katie's off at school, and the story turns to Maggie, who's giving seances now at the Union Hotel in Philadelphia. The year is 1852. A gentleman Wait, by Maggie the name of Maggie didn't go to school. Sorry, no mm-hmm. school for Maggie. Maggie's got to keep working because Leah says so. Oh <laughs> damn! Okay. Yeah, only one sister. She split the sisters. She said, "Okay, Horace, one can go to school. Pick one." He's and like, Katie "I'll take the younger one." Younger. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I don't think of. I don't know if Horace said that. That's uh, a little weird. Maggie, I hope he didn't say that. No, no, I, no. If I had to guess, it's because you know Maggie was older, so she probably had a, a more a big, better head on her shoulders to deal with crowds and you know public Too audiences and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. She's she's already gone. Uh, speaking of which, it's 1852. It's Philadelphia, and a gentleman by the name of Elisha Kent Kane attends one of Maggie's seances. Instantly, he is smitten. He begins exchanging notes with Maggie. He calls on her, and they take long carriage rides around the city with his cousin, Mrs. H.J. Patterson. I was about Wait, to say, what? where's that chaperone? There's I was the about chaperone. To say, oh, chaperone. It's the 19th century. Yeah, you cannot be unescorted uh, with a man in polite society. Hmm. Uh, but these carriage rides cause a minor scandal among Philadelphia's smarter set because Kane is a member of their ranks and Maggie is just a farm girl. He's got money and a respectable family name and all the privileges that come with that. Maggie's a country girl uh, at the front of a popular cultural craze whose name is regularly in the papers. No, <laughs> no things like that's not a good thing. You know, a, a Kardashian to like a truly, you know, aristocratic person, particularly 19th century, like that shit is crass. That is disgusting. They would come nowhere near these attention whores. You got me? So it's yeah. it's actually a blight. It's a black mark on Maggie that she is famous. Her fame is a problem. Truly powerful, elite, and aristocratic people do not seek fame, do not want fame, do not have fame, because fame is for the poors. Plus probably her being a woman, right? Well, I mean, he they would like him to get together with no, a woman. No, that's not what I mean, <laughs> but I mean, it makes it worse that she probably is like a woman in that position of like fame of fame yeah oh yeah yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah. that would make her even yeah more whorish i guess in their eyes more Mm -hmm. more like a prostitute seeking you know attention Mm -hmm. the culture of celebrity uh was as i'm saying a bit different in the 19th century they had celebrities but putting yourself before the public uh was gauche crass crass and and as i'm saying vulgar okay so despite their difference in social status kane persisted he was deeply taken with Maggie. Their letters to each other, along with those of acquaintances who witnessed their courtship, were published in 1866 as a memoir of the love life of Dr. Kane. Uh, Let's go ahead and hear a bit from that memoir. Little as she suspected his feelings, he loved her at first sight. Her beauty was that of a delicate kind which grows on the heart rather than captivates the sense at a glance. Kane believed, like Greeley, that Maggie deserved a good education, and he managed to get her mother to let him pay for her to attend Mrs. Turner's boarding school outside the city. Fine. Uh, 
but here's the interesting and fateful thing about Elisha Kent Kane. He was not just a regular, boring old Philadelphia gentleman. He was an Arctic explorer oh, involved shit. in the search for the lost <laughs> British explorer, Sir John Franklin. What? How do a you, serious man. How do you get that job? <laughs> you just you're rich and you do whatever you want, so okay. that's what he wanted. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Damn. Franklin, uh, Sir John Franklin was charting the Northwest Passage on behalf of the British government, and his disappearance was one of the great mysteries of the Victorian age. <gasps> Wait, is this the terror? No, it's not the terror. Is it the same story? What? Never mind, keep going. I think is so, this Never mind. <laughs> They call it a great mystery, even though this man sailed a boat into the Arctic and never came back. Like, I'm pretty <laughs> sure I know what happened to him. Is this like with the yeah. party that turned up all dead and they, or is it just this dude? Oh yeah, there's going to be a dead party. Yeah, I think this is the terror, the plot to the terror. Anyway, keep going. Kane was a doctor who had served as a medical officer on the first attempt to locate Franklin from 1850 to 1851. In 1853, Kane organized a second expedition, which he led himself and left only a month after he'd gotten Maggie into school. The first expedition had found traces of Franklin's encampment, and Kane believed that there were still members of Franklin's party alive somewhere in the Arctic. Holy crap. <laughs> of the 136 picked men of Sir John Franklin in 1846, North Orkney men, Greenland whalers, so many young and hearty constitutions, with so much intellect experience to guide them, I cannot realize that some may not yet be alive. He wasn't alone. The British government had sent several ships. Franklin's wife personally commissioned two ships and the United States government, along with the financier Henry Grimmel, who helped to finance Kane's expeditions. According to Kane's posthumous biographer William Elder, it totaled up to 25 expeditions of 31 boats, costing in the neighborhood of $4 million, which would be well over $100 million today. Oh, my God. So they spent $4 million in their time. Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> wow. I hope this guy was worth it. Makes <laughs> like... seance seem cheaper by comparison now, doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> Dear brother and friend, things look so arctic and the big responsibilities of my undertaking are so crowding around me that I sit down from the very impulse to give your brother's letter of confidence. Now that the thing... The dream has concentrated itself into a grim, practical reality. It is not egotism, but duty to talk of myself and my plans. I represent other lives and other interests than my own. Two years passed, with Maggie attending Mrs. Turner's and Kane exploring the Arctic. While Kane was still in reach of civilization, she received letters from him. But when he crossed into the Arctic, all she could do was wait nervously for his return. By May of 1855, when no sign of Kane's expedition had appeared, Kane's brother John left on a rescue mission to recover him. During the first winter of their expedition, Kane's boat, the Advance, had frozen into the Arctic Sea, and his crew was forced to uh, do a, undergo a long trek back to civilization, dragging a small boat across hundreds of miles of ice. He finally returned to New York in October 1855, and there was some pretty big fanfare about his return. A sixth of his crew had died, and the living were badly hurt by the adventure. Maggie expected him to call on her, but his family interfered. After hearing from one of Kane's friends that his family would not permit a meeting, Kane made a dramatic entrance the next morning in full naval dress. 
To please his mother, he had Maggie sign a paper indicating that relations between them were purely platonic. Then, regretting having ever made her sign it, he returned the note to her, which she tore up. Wow. Yeah, this is like out so of a romantic. Jane Austen novel, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm swooning. Oh. For the next couple of months, Kane worked on his two-volume account of his adventures in the, in the Arctic, and then in summer of 1856, he was invited to London, where he planned to give his account to Franklin's widow in person and to receive awards from several scientific societies for his expeditions. Before he left, he called Maggie and her family together and professed that they were husband and wife, privately to them. Um, or at least that's the story that Maggie and her family told, whether or not they were married in this way, it was clear that Cain loved Maggie and probably would have wanted to marry her. But his health, badly compromised by his Arctic adventure and exacerbated by his family drama, took a turn for the worse in London, and he sailed to Havana to recover in warmer climes. But it was no use. Cain died on the 16th of February, 1857. His family refused to acknowledge Maggie as his widow, perhaps most practically to keep her from inheriting any of his property, but they did end up providing her with a small allowance. In 1858, Maggie converted to Catholicism and took a hiatus from mediumship. She was depressed and arguably never recovered from the loss of Dr. Kane, although she did return to the seance table. We know by the 1880s, 30 years later, that she was touring as a medium and had developed pretty severe alcoholism. The pressures of being a child star are one thing. Bear in mind, she is essentially a child star, mm-hmm. uh, having you know risen to incredible fame, international fame, in a matter of like less than a year. Well, in and all then the also newspapers. having assassination attempts against you when you're a child right. and stuff too. I'm sure. Yeah, she's Doesn't like help. 14 years old, so it's intense. Uh, So the pressures of being a child star are one thing, but the near miss of a happy life with a man she loved was too much for her to bear. Long after he died, and despite the fact that his family disavowed her, Maggie often went by the name of Margaret Fox Kane. Huh. In 1888, an event billed as the death blow to spiritualism would thrust her into the spotlight one final time. At the New York Academy of Music, a huge crowd gathered for what promised to be a cataclysmic revelation— Margaret Fox took the stage with Katie looking on approvingly from the balcony. She removed her shoe, and with the confirmation of five doctors grasping at and observing her foot, she wiggled her toe and made a cracking sound. The woman's big toe sounded like a muffled hammer, but I heard every stroke from the farthest parts of the balcony. That, then, was the Rochester Rap, whose effect may be compared to the first gun of the revolution, heard round the world. The otherworldly tapping of the spirits had been Maggie's big toe the whole time. Or at least that was the claim. The scene was chaotic, with skeptics applauding, with I told you so grins, and believers crying out in protest. The whole thing was a ghastly attempt to bury alive the spiritualist loved ones who had been dead, but who had been restored to them by the faith now pronounced by its founders as an imposture and delusion. Wow. I would love to be a fly on the wall in that scene. Mm. Oh, my God. It would probably be so chaotic. Oh, my God. (laughs) Intense night, yeah. Yeah. So the reporter uh, here, his name was Moncure Conway. He ascribed Maggie's confession to her Catholic faith. Her guilt, he said, had simply overwhelmed her, and nearing her twilight years, she had to fess up. 
However, only a few months later, she recanted her confession and went back on tour giving seances. The reason for Maggie's recantation varies according to who you're talking to. To contemporary spiritualists, they see Maggie's backsliding as genuine remorse for having lied and claimed that the taps had been a fraud and only caused by her toes. Mm. The lie was coerced out of her by the Catholic Church, which had deceived her away from the true faith, the spiritualist faith. Skeptics see the recantation as a product of Maggie's alcoholism. She staged the death blow to make money, but after the death blow, nobody wanted to pay her to give seances anymore because she had claimed (laughs) that they were all fake, right? Yeah. And that left her fairly destitute. So in order to support her alcoholism and just herself, she had to go back on the road as a medium, and so she had to recant her confession. Mm. So she's kind of a messy figure. Uh, Yeah. I think there's a lot of mysteries in this story. No matter who you believe, the one big takeaway from the death blow was that it wasn't a death blow at all. Spiritualist mediumship as an international craze had already declined significantly in popularity dating back to the Civil War, the American Civil War, I should say. But mediumship as a popular interest continued through the turn of the century, gaining in popularity amidst the widespread deaths of World War I, and then minted new international celebrities like Edgar Cayce, transforming into channeling in the 1980s and 90s with figures like Jay-Z Knight, and regaining a popular audience through mediums like John Edward and Sylvia Brown and now Teresa Caputo in the 90s, early 2000s, and all the way up to 2020. But this series is about the supposed supernatural power of a woman's sexuality, manifesting in this instance in the phenomena of attending uh, the adolescents Katie and Maggie Fox. Whether we want to believe any of the mediumistic feats they performed under the guidance of their sister Leah, after leaving for Rochester and then New York, the haunting of the Hydesville house remains an unsolved mystery. Maggie's big toe is not an adequate explanation for the events of 1848. Let's review. Number one. Former residents of the house, including but not limited to Michael Weekman, who we opened the episode with, heard mysterious sounds on the front door and throughout the house before the Fox family even arrived. And while he had a young daughter in the house, right? Oh, could have been another medium, yeah. Number two. The taps continued even when the sisters were not in the house and when they were as far away as Rochester. And number three. There was trace evidence of what may have been human remains in the basement of the house. So it's weird that she's able to say, oh, I'm just cracking my toes and causing the spirit to talk. But that doesn't explain any of the strange evidence produced in Hydesville all those years before, 30 years before, 40 years before. My goodness. So we have a pretty persuasive case for a legitimately haunted house and communicating spirit. What's interesting is if Katie and Maggie, or Leah for that matter, fabricated their mediumship using this event as a kind of springboard to fame. If that were true, it would show how willing we are to believe that young women possess otherworldly power, even if it isn't there. Maybe our cultural associations got the better of us this time. But just because we tend to believe that young women are capable of supernatural feats doesn't necessarily mean that that belief is illegitimate. I personally tend to believe that uh, American cheese is tasty because I grew up in my mother's deli and the cheese was always good there. Uh, But sometimes I come across some waxy processed singles and they kind of taste like plastic. That doesn't mean that American cheese is always plastic crap, but it does mean that it can be. So just because we have a fake medium or just because a medium is caught faking doesn't mean that there isn't the real thing out there. Are you following my metaphor? Yes. Yes. 
Maggie is certainly not the best example. She's the first example. That's why she's famous. I think her life is fascinating. But if we're looking for a persuasive medium, uh, we have to turn to other folks, I think, um, mm. who, who have uh, less problematic life stories. Uh, folks like Cora Richmond, maybe, or even Emma Britton. Um, I mean, there are countless cases out there. Mrs. Hayden, who toured to the UK. Uh, it, it's just a bunch of mediums in the literature that we can explore. But Maggie Fox gets a lot of attention for being number one. Uh, but she's just, she's complicated. Her history is very complicated as, you know, pr- proof positive of mediumship. And our story is very, um, like, Hollywood. Like you said, like, her whole romance thing is, like, a movie, basically. So it's fun to look at her in that aspect as well. Yeah, it's a good story. Well, that's why she made it to the Occult Confessions and <laughs> podcast. Her little, yeah. And I didn't, I didn't realize her just her little tie-in with history, with the whole, the expedition and, and shit. That kind of blew my mind. Yeah. yeah. I mean... I guess that's a tie into a different kind of history of it in, in American <laughs> and Western history. She is a, a very important figure in and of herself for having started the spiritualist craze that, you know, is still, like I said, still with us. But at that time period, it was huge. I mean, there were millions and millions and millions of people having seances in their homes, in their parlors, like uncountable. We don't know how many people actually did this because it was a very private event that people would have seances in their homes. Um, but there were mediums everywhere, and it all started with this Hydesville case. We should bring that back. <laughs> the seances in your homes? We can do it. We yep. can just do it. We can just give it a go. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. We know all the uh, parameters. All right, uh, Olivia, bring us on home. I hereby adjourn and declare close this meeting of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors till such a time as we get together and do it again. Our voices today included Lou Kinneman and Andrew Mims, Sean Priest, and Brandon Walls. Uh, joining me around the table, I have got Savannah Barrett. Uh, goodbye, everyone. Also, Olivia Litterell, our Grandmaster of the Order. Goodbye. It would be, you know, don't just go and have a seance because we talked about having a seance, guys. Be responsible. Thank you. Uh, me, my name is Rob C. Thompson. Uh, reiterating, yes, be responsible. Don't use Ouija boards. No, don't use, Ouija no, boards. Don't use no. them. Reach out to the highest and the best. Yes. Uh, uh, and sending all our love to all of you out there in the podcastosphere. We look forward to joining you next time uh, when we cover yet another example of lady magic here on Occult Confessions. <laughs> <laughs>